You know, the Bible says that God the Father has highly exalted Jesus and given him the name above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every tongue shall confess and every knee shall bow and confess Jesus Christ is Lord. You know, what better thing could we do today in honor of our Savior, our Lord, our, Majest, our, uh, our Mediator, our Advocate, our Great High Priest, our Head, our Lord, our Judge? What better thing could we do this morning than as a congregation to just confess the truth that's the most important truth in the world? And it's just a few words, Jesus Christ is Lord. The four greatest words you could ever confess. Would you join with me? We're going to do it twice. Would you say it with me now? Jesus Christ is Lord. Now let's shout it. Jesus Christ is Lord. And I guarantee you heaven rejoices. And the Father is pleased. If you want to go ahead and turn in your Bible, you can to Matthew chapter 5. Verses 13 and 14. You know, in any battle, I got to go get a book over here. In any battle, there are two things that are significant. First of all, you have to know who the enemy is. If you don't know who the enemy is, then you don't know how to fight. But not only do you have to know who the enemy is, you have to have a strategy to defeat the enemy. I've had those who were in the Vietnam conflict, who said when they went into a village, they never knew who was for them or against them because they all looked alike. And it was just difficult to know who the enemy really, really was. Even in Afghanistan, those who supposedly were pro-American have ended up killing many, many of our servicemen. And so you, you, you can't go to war unless you know who the enemy is, unless you have a strategy uh, to defeat that enemy. Now, we realize in the spiritual battle that we're in, we know who the enemy is. And don't ever, don't ever miss this. The enemy is Satan himself. He's the enemy. In fact, do you know what the Bible says? Over in 1 John, let me just read this. It's an amazing statement. And if you have any question who the enemy is, it's answered in this verse in 1 John 5, and I think it's verse um, 19. Listen at this, 1 John 5, 19. We know that we are of God, talking about believers. The whole book of 1 John was written to show you whether or not you're saved, whether or not you're truly a child of God. That's the whole purpose of 1 John. So you can let the Holy Spirit search your heart and you can know if you're saved. And it goes on to say, and we know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. He said, we're of God, but we know this, this whole world. 
This whole world system is under the control of the wicked one, under control of the devil. There's another verse in Ephesians 6, verse 12. Let me read that to you. Because it says what our, it tells us who the enemy is, y'all. We're not battling against flesh and blood. You know, it's easy to visualize and to see people in bodily form. But it's not just the people, it's the spirits or spirit behind the people. And if all you do is focus on the people, then you're going to miss the real enemy, which is Satan and the horde of demonic spirits that are under his control. And so Ephesians 6, 10, uh, 6.12, listen to what it says. It couldn't be any clearer than this. What Paul had in mind was the Olympic wrestling games which, in which a person wrestled, and it involved his total being, total being. With that in mind, this is what he said in Ephesians 6, 12. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. You've got to know who the enemy is. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age. Now get this, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Hey, don't misunderstand it. The enemy is Satan and the host of hell the demonic spirits under his command. And they are behind the systems that we battle uh, in this world today. But if we get our eyes on just the flesh and blood, we're not ever going to go beyond and attack the enemy where he needs to be attacked. You know, um, we're engaged in a spiritual battle, y'all. Every one of us. If you are a child of God, you are in a spiritual battle. You know what it says of Christians? Endure hardness, now get this, as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Wow. He said, you're in a battle. You're a soldier in the army of the Lord. Endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And then he says, now, those that fight, don't get entangled with the affairs of this life, that you may please him. He has called you. To be a soldier. Now remember this. You say, well, Brother Fred, I didn't volunteer to be in this spiritual battle. Listen to me. The day you were saved, the day that Jesus Christ came to live in you, the day that Jesus Christ came your life, uh, became your uh, life, the day you went from darkness to light, the day you went from the kingdom of the devil to the kingdom of God, the day you were truly born in repentance and faith, and to the family of God, at that moment, at that moment, you were involved in the battle. At that moment, you became in the army of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's not a matter of whether you volunteered. When you repented of your sin and received Christ, you, as his child, became involved in this awesome spiritual battle. And, and it's, a, it's a battle not against flesh and blood, but against principality, powers, and the rulers of the darkness of this world. Now, last week, we talked about the strategy of the devil. And that strategy was humanism. How that Satan has formulated a system, and behind, he is behind the system of humanism that is atheistic, 
and who made the statement in utter rebellion, no deity will save us, we must save ourselves. Who made with blatant confession that salvation and hopes of forgiveness of sin and a prayer hearing God, God are harmful and divisive. And so we know that humanism is the strategy of the enemy to defeat the people of God and to destroy this nation. So we understand, but it's the devil behind the system. And he works through people. Now, now you remember that the thing that opened the floodgates of wickedness and evil in America was when in the colleges and schools they said, okay, though no moral absolutes. There was a time in my lifetime where people believed in the Ten Commandments. They believed they were moral absolutes. Under no conditions were they right. If God said it was right, it was right. If God's word said it was wrong, it was wrong. But then Satan, with his strategy of humanism, came along and said, no, morality is autonomous. Each society, each group of people determine what is right, and each group of people determine what is wrong. And so we have a, a morality that is autonomous. In other words, people, people decide what is right and wrong. We're in the day of Judges where it says, and the people did what was right in their own eyes. But also they went on, the other part of the strategy of the devil is not only that ethics or morality is autonomous, it's situational. That the situation determines if it's right. The situation it determines if it's wrong. Now, how has this affected us? Well, all right, the situation says, well, you don't, you, it's better for you not to get married. Just move in together and live together. You, you don't have to get married because, you know, you can have a trial and error. If it doesn't work out, you can bail out. So situation says, you know, but that didn't used to be. That was frowned upon at one time. But the situational ethic says, here's two consenting adults. Whatever they do is fine. That's where you come uh, to the alternate lifestyles where they say, wait a minute, homosexuality or lesbianism is not wrong. It's two consenting adults, and they have the right to, to, to enter into any lifestyle they want to do. And in America, they do, but the problem is marriage with living with a person and not being married is a sin. It's called adultery. Having sexual relations with a man or, and a man or a woman and a woman is is you, you have that right to do that in this nation, but it's a sin against a holy God, regardless of what situational ethics says. So we know that we're fighting a battle, and we know that the devil is behind it, and we know that it is humanism. Now, what I want to talk about for the next few weeks, and I'm really excited about this, because what has troubled me is getting a handle on a strategy to defeat the devil in this thing. Oh, I know that prayer is the bottom line. Oh, I know that. But I'm talking about a strategy we can have every day of our life when we go to work and when we go to school and when we interact with our neighborhood. We need a strategy. And the Bible makes it clear what our strategy is. I, I've got a hold of this book. It was a divine appointment. Somebody gave it to me about uh, a month ago. Living as salt and light uh, living as living, living salt and light. God's call to transform your world by Derek Prince, a great man of God, 
It's been dead a number of years. But I'm telling you, as I've perused this book, man, he has a strategy. I mean, a real strategy. And I believe that, that, that it, it is a strategy that if the body of Christ will adopt it, that we'll be able to turn the tide. And, and I promise you, if you adopt the strategy, you will change the world in which you live. You will. Because Jesus told us what the strategy is, okay? This is the first part. All right, you got Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. Now, I really messed the people up who are doing the scriptures because I started in a totally different direction. But that's okay. They'll catch up with me later. All right, what does Matthew 5, 13 and 14 say? It says, now listen, this is what Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, which is the pattern, the pattern for normal Christian living, which is the mandate of this is how God's people live in the world of which Satan is the prince and the ruler. It says in verse 13, you, that's you, that's me, children of God, followers of Jesus, born of the Spirit, new creations in Christ, you are the light of the world. What a statement. It says, a city, your city, that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Goes on. I need to go back to verse 13. I get ahead of myself. Then I find I forgot where I'm at. Okay, but here we go. Let's go back to verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. That's the first declaration. You are the salt of the earth. The word the there is an exclusive word. In other words, there's no other salt but you. Talking about it in the spiritual world. And he says, unless you're salt, there will be no salt. Talking about Christians now. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is good for nothing but to be thrown out, and get this, trampled under the feet of men. Now you talk about a tragedy. You're the salt of the earth. But if the salt lose its flavor, it's no good. And guess what? It's a, it's a picture of the church, of God's people. He said, but if the salt loses its flavor, it's good for nothing. Well, that's a pretty bad word. Well, he's good for nothing, or it's good for nothing. To be thrown out, and get this, to be trampled on by the feet of men. And then he goes on and says, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. There are three things that Jesus said that are God's strategy for defeating the enemy. Three of them. And they're absolutely loaded with truth. Absolutely loaded with truth. First of all, he says, your city set on a hill. He said, you're the light of the world. He says, you're the salt of the earth. You know, I've often wondered about this. Your city that is set on a hill, and a city that's set on a hill cannot be hidden. Have you ever noticed you'll be 
driving somewhere and it seems like it's just darkness, you know, and then all of a sudden you start and you, you see a light in the, in, in the, uh, in, out, out in the distance and sure enough it gets brighter the closer you get and it's a city, it's a city and you can't hide it, you can't hide it and, and everybody, once you get there, you can see it, you can't conceal it. You know what Jesus said about us? You're a city that's set on a hill. And boy, this is really what got me. Listen to me carefully. The day you publicly confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you became a city that is set on a hill that day. In other words, whether it was when you were baptized or whatever, but the day you've openly confessed, I am a Christian. I am a follower of Jesus Christ. I am under the lordship of Jesus. The day you said that, you became a city set on a hill. And guess what? People began to watch you. They began to watch you. The people you work with. The people you go to school with. Your neighbors. You know what? He, he's a Christian. He says he's a Christian. She says she's a Christian. She brought her Bible to school. And they began to watch you. And, and they, they, they're going to observe you. See, you're a city. You're sitting on a hill. And they're going to observe you. Well, I'm just going to watch them and see if what they believe affects the way they live. In other words, do they live a different kind of life? Do they live a changed life? And they're watching to see if your conduct matches your confession. And they're going to say, well, let's just see if it lasts. Let's just see if it lasts. And so you don't realize it, but once you openly confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, then you become that city set on a hill, and people are going to watch you, they're going to observe you, they're going to examine you to see if you live a Christian life, to see if you believe the Word of God. And you know what? You'll not, not only be a testimony of who you are, you'll be a reflection on the church that you attend. And they will make assumptions about the church you go to by the life you live. It was Mahatma Gandhi that said, and I'm just telling you his statement. The only reason he did not become a Christian, he was greatly influenced by Jesus, was the way Christians lived, professing Christians. That was his statement. Now, don't, don't think for a moment that once you declare your faith in Jesus, that it's just you and the Lord. Oh, no, no. From that moment on, you're a city, and you're being observed. And your life is either going to show them that Christianity is real or it's going to show them that it's just a bunch of words. And I'm telling you, you know, it's hard to argue with the light of a city set on a hill. When a person who says, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, and they are honest, and they were loving, and they are kind, and their thoughts are pure, they don't engage in the Dirty jokes, they don't engage in the pornography that's shown at lunchtime, that they live a lifestyle that is, is, it's a holy lifestyle. It's not a perfect lifestyle, but it's a holy lifestyle. 
It's a life that is above the level of this world. It's above the level of this world. And they notice, you know, their life is above the level of this world. It's called holy. And they see that your, your beliefs are real. And though your beliefs affect the way you live. And the, they affect your life at home. They affect your life in community and in the church. Let me tell you this thing about being a follower of Jesus. Let me tell you about being a city set on a hill. It's not at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. It's 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Now, I want to ask you something. If the only Christian they ever see is you, are they going to say, you know, the Bible's real. It's real. You know, they, 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 they're really different. They're not a holier than thou, but, but, but they live a righteous life. They live a godly life. There's something about them that wants me to, it draws me to them. And it's the presence of Christ in your life. I'm telling you, if every true child of God would be like a, would, would be a godly city, a righteous city, a holy city, a city that absolutely loves people and lays down their life. I tell you, if we would be a city set on a hill, we could change the moral climate of where we are. One Christian, like a city set on a hill, living a godly life by the power of Jesus, can change the atmosphere of where you work. That you can. You can change the atmosphere of your home. You can have a tremendous impact in your neighborhood. When they have the gatherings, you know they have it because they've got to get the dues. I didn't understand, what do they do with all the dues? But that's not my concern. But anyway, when you have the, 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 the neighborhood meeting, man, you, you can be a city set on a hill. When they see you walking in the neighborhood and doing, I'm telling you, Jesus said the strategy is a city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. And so the light you're giving out, it's either going to be the light of Jesus or it's going to be so mixed in with the darkness that it'll have no impact on the people around you. You are a city set on a hill. And what kind of light are you giving? What kind of light am I giving? What kind of light is Luke 4.18 giving? So many of you have loved ones that don't know Jesus. You have close friends that don't know Jesus. you got people that you work with. Some of them are just plain out humanists. They feel uncomfortable about when anybody names the name of Jesus. But just remember, God put you there. And the will of God will never take you any place that the grace of God will not keep you. Oh, no. So you just got to be a city set on a hill. But then it goes on and Jesus said, listen, not only are you the city set on a hill, said you are, and this is exclusive, he said, you are the light of the world. My heavens. I mean, he says that about a mere mortal like you and me, not anything unusual or abnormal, I hope. I mean, hey, he says of you, do you understand that in God's economy, in this spiritual battle, in this world, that you, when you became a follower of Jesus Christ, you at that moment became light in the darkness. You became the light 
of the world. And it's exclusive. By the way, now hear me, and this is so narrow, it would drive some people crazy. But I'm going to tell you it's the truth. If the, Christ, if the believers of Jesus Christ are not light, and if the church of Jesus Christ is not light, there will be no light. It will come from nowhere else. Light's not going to come from the White House. Light's not going to come from the Senate or the House. Light's not going to come from the judicial system. I'm telling you, Jesus said, He that follows me will not, he said, I am the light of the world. He that follows me will not walk in darkness, but you will have the light of life. And I am telling you, the only light this world has is the light of a child of God and a light of the body of Christ, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, man, he said it. You're the light of the world. And you know, remember he said, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. You know, Um, in, the, in, the, in the tabernacle, there was the holy place. And at the back of the holy place was the holy of holies. In the holy place, there were three pieces of furniture. At the very back of the holy place was the golden incense, the altar of incense a golden altar of incense that were constantly, constantly burning, offering all up its fragrance and the smoke, a symbol of the prayers of Jesus and, uh, and the holiness of God, and you can never go in God's presence without being covered with that. But there was a seven, there was a candlestick. Seven, it's called the seven-fold candlestick. Now, seven is very significant because the seven candlestick arbor in the, uh, whatever it would be called, in the holy place is a picture of the church. A seven is a number of the nature of the church. In Revelation 2 and 3, it's called the seven churches, and each one of them had it was a candlestick. And Jesus said, if you don't repent, I'll come and remove your candlestick, Okay. So the candlestick is a picture of the, of, 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 of the light, the light that's in the child of God. It's a picture of the light that's in the church. Now, it's not a candle like we think about. You know, today you get these wax candles, you know, and they got a wick or whatever you call that, and you put it in a candle holder and you light that candle, and, and that is a, to us is a candle. It's just a a candle with a thing, and you light it. Oh no, that was not the the candlestick in, in the in the in the holy place. Was this? They were bowls, and there was a channel that flowed with oil to the bowl, and a wick was put in the bowl, and there was the oil, and the wick was put there, and the wick they would light fire to the wick. And the wick got its light, got its fire from the oil. And so you've got to understand that that was the picture. 
But you know the whole purpose? Now, you've got to get this. This is why it says we're the light of the world. And there will be no light unless we are. Did you know the whole purpose of the candlestick? Those bowls with the fire burning with the oil. You know the whole purpose? Across the room from it was the golden table of showbread. And that was a picture of Jesus. In fact, in John uh, chapter 6, uh, talking about the table of showbed, in John 6, 48, I want you to look at this. Jesus says, now that table of showbread, that golden table with the showbread on it was Jesus. And in John 6, 48, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. All right, here's the table of showbread, and I am the bread of life, what Jesus said. Then you go on down in John, the same sixth chapter, in verse 51. John, uh, all right, look what it says. Now look, it's on the screen. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I give for the light of the world. Now get this. You've got to get it. The sole purpose of the candlesticks and the light was to illuminate the table of showbread, which was a picture, a type of Jesus. Now, you see the analogy? You know the purpose of us is light? is to shine on Jesus, for the light of Jesus to be shown through us. It was to let people know that he is the bread of life, and he is the one who gives life. And so the purpose of the light was to shine in the holy place, to shine on the showbread, because the bread was Jesus. And folks, listen, we're the light of the world, and our life is to, light is to shine and reflect and reveal Jesus Christ. That's the whole purpose of the light, that Jesus Christ may be seen as who he is, the high and exalted one, the blessed and only Savior, the way, the truth, and the life. And so the church, it, it, it shines and, ref, and, and shines and reveals Jesus to the world in which the church is. And wherever you work or whatever you do, you're the light and you shine so that Jesus can see Jesus Christ in you and know that he is real. The, you're the light of the world. And as light, we reflect Jesus Christ. He has come to live in us. Let me tell you something. Jesus makes the difference wherever he is. Oh, listen, you bring up the name of Jesus in an office they, they may get angry. Some may rejoice. But I'll tell you one thing. The whole climate will change. It won't remain neutral anymore. You see, Jesus is the great divider. Oh, you can talk about God all you want to. And God to them is anything they want to make God. It may be themselves. 
But man, you move from talking about God and you start talking about Jesus Christ, God manifest in the flesh, perfect deity, perfect humanity, who died on the cross for our sins, was raised from the dead by the power of God, is seated at the right hand of the Father with all authority, and one day will come again as King of kings and Lord of lords. I'll tell you what, when you're as light, you reflect and reveal Jesus, everything changes. And that's where the war really is. Because the devil knows that Jesus has already defeated him. Satan knows that his, his uh, fate is already sealed. And it is at the name of Jesus the disciples came back and said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. You know the strategy? As a child of God, surrendered to the Lordship of Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, set on fire, just like that candle was. The Bible says in Matthew 3, I think it's verse 11, it says, John baptized you with water, but Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And when a Christian is baptized by the Lord Jesus with the Holy Spirit and fire, I'm telling you, when we are filled with the Holy Spirit and the fire of God is in us, it will reflect Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you, there's a power there that is greater than any power in this world. And listen to me. I want to tell you something. The devil is a defeated foe, and the only ground he has is the ground we give him. Greater is Christ that is in us than the devil that is in the world. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. They overcame him by the word of their testimony and the blood of the Lamb. Let me tell you something. When the oil of the Holy Spirit fills us and the fire of God is in our hearts, we can stand strong and be light and we can be a city set on a hill. And I want to tell you right now, friend, don't you ever underestimate the power of God in your life. I'm telling you, one Christian in any situation with Jesus is a majority. Well, there's one other thing he said. He said, you're a city set on a hill. Okay? They're going to watch us, Lord. But they're going to see it's real. We really believe what we say we believe. It affects our conduct. It affects our lives. Jesus is our life. He said, you're not only a city set on a hill. You are the light of the world. And you're to shine on Jesus and glorify Jesus. And if you aren't light, there's not going to be any light. You know what excites me? Some of you may be the only Christian in your classroom. You may be the only Christian in your office. You may be the only Christian on your street. But just think, there in the midst of the darkness, God has planted you as a city set on a hill. And he's planted you as a light in the darkness. What a privilege. What an awesome opportunity. But then he says, you're the salt of the earth. Boy, I tell you, Jesus, you had a great confidence and a great mission for your people. City on a hill, light of the world, the salt of the earth. Salt does many things. First of all, it gives flavor. And secondly, it stops corruption. 
are decay. That's too main. It does other things, but it, it does uh, give flavor. Did you know Job talked about that? It is interesting what you'll find in the book of Job. I, I mean, Job, I think it's chapter 6, verse 6. I want to listen to you what he said, and you all can relate to this. In Job 6, 6, he said, Can flavorless food be taken without salt? Or is there any taste in the white of an egg? Have you ever tried to eat the white of the egg with no, no salt on it? It's like eating Play-Doh. I mean, come on. Job said, hey, you can't eat food that doesn't have flavor. Hey, let me tell you something. I want you to think about this. You're the salt of the earth. You know what God's saying? That our life is to give flavor. Our life in Christ is to give flavor. And that flavor is the only thing that continues to cause God to pour out mercy and grace upon this nation. Have you ever thought about it? Here, here are Christians, and I believe there's a remnant all across America. I'm not talking about organized religion. God's long forgotten about that. I'm talking about the body of Christ. The genuine, born-again, life-changing, holy, righteous, godly children of God. And I want to tell you, they're the salt of their, their flavor. And it is that flavor that goes up to God that holds back the wrath of God. You know why I know that? One day the Lord stopped by Abraham's house and said, Abraham, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham knew that his cousin, his nephew Lot was there. And Lot's wife was there. And Lot's daughters were there. His married daughters and Lot's grandchildren were there. And so Lot, Abraham walked with the Lord toward Sodom. And, and he began to talk to the Lord. He said, Lord, if there are 50 grains of salt, 50 righteous people in Sodom, will you spare it? He said, yeah. Lot got to thinking, I don't know 50. He said, Lord, Lord, if there are 40 grains of salt, if there are 40 righteous, would you spare it? God said, yeah. Lot said, man, I don't, I, don't, I, don't know, I don't know 40. Well, what about 30, Lord? What about 20? God said, yeah. If there are 20 grains of salt, if there's 20 righteous, I'll spare it. And then he said, wait a minute. There's Lot. There's his wife, there's his daughters, there's his, their husbands, and their grandchildren. I guarantee you there are 10 grains of salt in Sodom. And so finally he says, Lord, if there are 10 righteous people in Sodom, will you spare it? God said yes. But guess what? There weren't 10. Oh, Lot got out. A couple of his unmarried daughters. His wife got out but looked back and was turned to a pillar of salt. He thought in his, 
in the family that he took into Sodom, there would be 10 grains of salt that God would spare the city. But there weren't. And can you imagine the heartbreak of, Saul, of Lot as he looked back on Sodom and knew that his daughters that had married the people from Sodom and his grandchildren were all burned up in the judgment of God. Now listen. There's a great story there. As salt, we, are, we offer flavor to God. And it's a righteous flavor as a child of God. And why do you think God has had mercy on us the way he has? Oh, we're experiencing God's judgment in many ways. But why do you think? Because I'm going to tell you something. There's some righteous people in Mobile. There's some righteous people in Citronelle. There's some righteous people in Saraland. And I think that God looks down upon his children and says, there's a flavor from these people that are godly, and maybe that restrains. I don't know, but maybe that's what restrains the judgment of God. We already have it, but not to the degree we would have it if it wasn't for God's children. And man, that's what it means to be salt, that you offer a flavor a flavor up to God that causes God to continue to deal with us in mercy and grace. And if it wasn't because of, if it wasn't because of his great mercy, we'd all be consumed. But you know one other thing that salt does? It stops corruption. Before they got refrigerators, you know before they had refrigerators, they had ice boxes. Any of y'all know what an ice box is? That was a, refrigerator that had a place in the top and you put the ice up there. I don't know how it cooled the rest of it down there, but I mean the ice man would come by and we'd put ice up there. He said, boy, you're ancient. You better believe it. I remember it. I mean, he'd bring the ice. The ice man would come by. But I'll tell you what it did. It kept it cool and we didn't, the food didn't spoil. Salt stops decay. People who were going to go on a long journey, they would wrap the meat in salt and the salt would preserve it. It would keep it from decaying. What's the difference between regular ham and country ham? You say country ham is salty. Yeah. It has been preserved by salt. You'll see them hanging up in the store. They never, they never put them in the refrigerator. And you can eat country ham, and it'll cause you to drink more water than you've ever drunk in your life. <laughs> you want to increase your water intake? Every now and then I get it just to see how it tastes. Man, but you know what? I guarantee you, I'm not worried about it because salt stops corruption. If we're what God wants us to be, we will hold back the tide of corruption. We'll stem the tide of wickedness and ungodliness. You know and I know if the church had been filled with the Spirit of God and aflame by the fire of God over these last years, there would not be the corruption and wickedness would not abound like it does if the church had been salt and stemmed the tide of wickedness. And brother, where wickedness advances, it means that the salt is not doing its job. You know, here's what encourages me. Every one of you who's a child of God, you're a city set on a hill. Every one of you 
are the light of the world. And every one of you are the salt of the earth if you are a child of God. I won't tell you. We, individually and as a church, can make a difference. And that's the strategy of Jesus. It has never changed. And throughout history, when the church has been salt and light and a city, wickedness has been stemmed and righteousness has prevailed. But whenever that stopped, then the floodgates but here's the battle we're fighting right now. And we might as well face it. They will try to force upon us acceptance of ungodliness and darkness through decisions of the court system. But I'm going to tell you what we're going to have to do. We're going to have to say just like Paul said. Who was it? Peter and John, they arrested him. It was Peter and John. They arrested them and said they, they commanded them not to speak and teach at all in the name of Jesus. And what did Peter say to them? We ought to obey God rather than... Okay. We ought to obey God rather than men. They say, don't speak out against wickedness. I don't have a choice. We don't have a choice. We don't have a choice. We've got to obey God rather than men. No, we're not going to be judgmental. No, we're not going to be intolerant. No, we're not going to have malice. No, we're going to be ugly. But I'll tell you one thing. We'll speak the truth in love, and we will not be silent. Because we're light, and we're salt, Christ in us, and we're a city set on a hill. I'm excited. I'm telling you, I'm excited. If we just got a glimpse of the power of God in the church, if the church would get right with God, I'll tell you what, we'd get excited and we know that Jesus could turn this nation upside down by his mighty power. Let's quit looking at men and thinking about their power and let's start looking at God and the power of Jesus and the power of a group of people that are salt, light, and a city on a hill. And let's say, let me tell you one thing, with God, all things are possible. And let's don't drop our heads and say, well, it's hopeless. That's a lie straight out of hell. It is not hopeless. Our God is an awesome God. And with God, all things are possible. Praise the name of Yahweh, Jehovah, El Shaddai, the great and mighty God. And it's a great day to be alive. And it's a great day to be able to take a stand for the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's do it. Let's live it and then do it. But if you don't live it, you can't do it.